You have to do it your way. Some things you have to leave behind, but always be who you are no matter what the situation. Welcome to Meet the Leader, the podcast where top leaders share how they're tackling the world's toughest challenges. In today's episode, Vicki Hullib, the Chief Executive Officer of Occidental Petroleum, talks Ukraine, navigating the energy transition, and the lessons she's learned so far in her decades-long career. Subscribe to Meet the Leader on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please don't forget to rate and review. I'm Linda Liz with the World Economic Forum, and this is Meet the Leader. It's made us want to do more, to push harder for what we think is right, for the energy transition to be successful. The energy transition is the challenge of our time, and the last few years have made that challenge all the more difficult, thanks to global events like the pandemic and the invasion of Ukraine. CEO Vicki Hullab said to me that these changes drove home for her personally, the importance of getting even more aggressive on driving solutions that can speed and fund the energy transition. One solution at Occidental, or Oxy, uses carbon capture to take carbon from the air and trap it into the ground to aid in oil production and to create a carbon neutral oil, something that even some environmental groups have noted could work in the short term. At May's annual meeting in Davos, Vicky explained to me how this technology could work and what other tech will need to be leveraged urgently to mitigate climate change. She also discussed a transformation of a different sort, bridging the gender gap. Vicky is the first woman ever to lead a major American oil and gas company, and she talked about the solutions she believes could work to bridge gaps further, including mandating bias training for the C-suite. We talked about all that, including the trades she depends on and the ones that she's left behind. We'll get into it all, but we'll get started with the Ukraine conflict and how she expects energy markets to shift. I think that certainly all countries around the world are going to be looking for ways to diversify their energy sources and to be very cautious and, and do a lot more evaluation about where they're getting their sources of energy as well. And I think the, the fact that energy independence has come up a lot here recently, and especially now that this is happening, and, and I think countries are, are going to shift to alliances that they can develop in a, in a bigger, broader way so that they're not locked in and, and finding themselves somewhere down the road a little bit depend, too dependent on someone. And when you talk about these alliances, can you tell me a little bit more about how those might walk and talk? What, what would those look like? I would say that for a long time, the U.S. had a really strong alliance with the Middle East. And then what disrupted that to some degree was the development of the shell, what we call the shell revolution. And what happened there is we were actually able to find enough resource and develop the capability to become energy independent. And that doesn't mean that we don't want to still be allies with the Middle East because you know we operate in the Middle East and have great operations and great partnerships there. But it, it really put the United States in a different position with respect to leverage around the world. And, and that was important. And, and now in some ways, I feel like sometimes we're not as grateful for that as we should be in the U.S. 
But seeing what's happening now in the world, I think that um, we need to be careful about who our allies are and we need to nourish those relationships and grow those relationships over time. Leaders need to explore partnerships that have never really been uh, needed before, uh, sort of rethink how they work with each other. How, How will that play out? I think that's definitely true. And I think that also comes because of the supply chain disruption. Uh, now it's better for companies to try to find ways to, to help each other with materials and with services. And to we've done that a little bit offshore, but we haven't ever done it as much in onshore operations. And I think we have to develop that mentality that to, to be the best that we can and to, to maintain the margins that we've been able to develop over time, the higher margins, I think it's really important to share services and to help each other with materials as, as we go through something this disruptive. Uh, the Ukraine crisis has been a major disruptor. Do you think that will um, speed up or slow down the energy transition? I think in the short term, it'll slow it down because, again, because of the supply chain, 5% of steel, 6% of aluminum, 18% of uh, the nickel comes from Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus. So that's disrupted. But I think what it will do, though, is just what happened has given us all uh, another pause to think. You know, the, the pandemic made us all really think about the energy transition, I think, in a different way. And to think that um, even though it wasn't climate related, it made us stop and reflect a lot more about the world and the state of the world and the health of the world. And so I think the pandemic caused us to, to all get more committed around uh, the energy transition. And I, and I think that what's happened now has accelerated that commitment and made it even stronger. But our hands are going to be tied in the near term because of the supply chain. But I think in the medium and long term, it's going to be more beneficial because I think we've got more people that are realizing it's got to be all of the above. It's got to be a lot of, a lot of things happening, not just renewables, not just EVs, not just oil and gas. But we've got to think of other things, too. We've got to get really aggressive with carbon capture. We've got to get aggressive with methane emissions. And so there's a lot of things to do. But it's really been inspiring to see how at least there are pockets that are starting to form of of some collaboration that's happening. Since the pandemic happened, what do you think is maybe one of the most important priorities that you were able to sort of set for yourself and sort of say, hey, you know what, we need to be doing this now. The context has changed. We were already committed to, to build the largest direct air capture facility in the Permian Basin, and uh, we were we moved along with that. We're um, approaching FID. We'll start construction at the end of this year. So that was going really, really well for us, and uh, everybody's excited about it. I think it'll be game-changing ultimately. But um, but the other thing that it's it's made us want to do more is to push harder for what we think is right to push harder for the things that we think need to have happen uh, for the energy transition to be successful. For folks who aren't familiar, can you define direct air capture technology? Yes, uh, direct air capture technology is an exciting thing. It's a way of, uh, with these large industrial fans that we actually pull air from the atmosphere, push it through a contact tower, use a fluid that then extracts the CO2 out of the air, returns the remaining air back to the atmosphere, takes the CO2 and enables us to 
uh, either sequester it, use it, or uh, put it in enhanced oral recovery and sequester it in a different way. What we're trying to do is view CO2 as a, as a product, a valuable product, and not something that you only have to sequester. There are ways that we can use it uh, for other things that ultimately will help to fund what we, we need to have fund, funded here, which is not going to be a, um, an inexpensive process. And, and, and given all that, what is needed to really scale that technology? We need to build more of these faster. And uh, just like wind and solar, which when they started out, uh, by the time they were, uh, I think about 10 years down the road, they had already reduced their cost by at least 80%. And what we feel like is we have to build it before we can make it better. And we have a tool that wind and solar didn't have. We have uh, now with the computing world where it is today and artificial intelligence and all that, now we can, um, we can build a digital twin of the direct air capture, and we can work on optimizing it uh, in the cloud with this digital twin. So I think it's not going to take us as long to lower costs as it did wind and solar, who didn't have this available to them back when they were starting out. So I think that we will be able to reduce costs, but we need to get them built. And the way we've got to make that happen is to just go out and do it. And, and so what holds it back, right? Like, what do you think could be a potential uh, slowdown or a potential uh, hurdle? What is slowing it down is, uh, is the fact that it does cost money. And the way we set our strategy out was what we thought was the best way to help the world. And, and when I say this, sometimes I lose people. But just bear with me here. Our strategy has been to, to try to leverage our core competence of using CO2 in enhanced oil recoveries, uh, reservoirs. We've done it now for more than 50 years. When you inject CO2 into a reservoir, it does increase the recovery from the reservoir. But the way it increases that recovery is that that molecule of CO2 goes in and gets that molecule that's trapped in these micropores. And it's what we call residual oil saturation, where the, the oil in those tiny pores is never going to move unless you put CO2 in there and it reduces the viscosity viscosity of the molecule and kind of pops it out and then the CO2 replaces it in there. And that's how you sequester CO2 as you're increasing oil production. And the reason that's important is because ultimately the CO2 that's emitted from the barrels that are used and that you get from that CO2 that you put in the reservoir, that CO2 that's emitted is lower than the CO2 that you've injected to get it out. So what you end up with is a carbon neutral or carbon negative barrel of oil. Now, there are those that feel like that CO2 should never be used to increase more oil production because oil production should go away today. The, the reality is that from the estimates I've heard recently from reliable sources, the energy transition could cost two to three hundred trillion dollars, and there's no way the world can afford it. There's no way we can afford to do that. So we need to to do it in the way we're doing it because that will help fund the the transition, and it provides carbon um, negative or neutral oil for aviation and maritime industries to use. And when you can get more hydrocarbons, oil or gas or whatever it is, when you can get more oil out of the reservoir, out of existing reservoirs, that means that you're not having to buy infrastructure 
to put somewhere else to meet and, and develop a new area to meet demand. So all that steel and the facility that you had to use metals to build the, the facilities, that then has no additional carbon footprint because it's already there. And so all the way around, this is a much better way to develop the rest, the remaining reserves in the world. And oil is going to be needed for decades to come. So if we do it this way and you focus only on emissions, not the source of the, of the fuel, but the emissions, which is what we need to attack, then this is the best way to do it. I think a lot of people uh, forget that there needs to be this transition Yes, in, yes. in these plans. Why do you think that is? Why do you think people in their brains think, oh, we can just somehow go cold turkey and the whole world can just flip a switch and just have a different <laughs> Okay, well, there are those people with an agenda, and I'll just set them aside. <laughs> but, but there are some people who just don't know because they listen to the people with the agenda. And sometimes we, we will look to, toward um, former politicians and uh, those who maybe have some celebrity, and we believe that everything they say. And uh, there's too many people saying the wrong things. There's too many people putting information out that's not helpful for the energy transition. There are a lot of good people who don't know the truth because we haven't been able to get the message out there um, in a broad enough way. As we've talked to uh, companies about this uh, who are uh, considering investing with us and we help them understand it, we're getting a lot more interest in, in doing this. And, and so I think it just it, it matters to, to me to help people understand it, but it's going to matter to the world for them to get it because if they don't, then we're going to leave people behind and we're going to leave people um, doing the things that they're doing today, which is cooking inside their, their homes with things that are causing um, uh, emissions inside their home that's going straight into their lungs. We can't have that happen. We've got to address that. So we have to bring everybody with us in this transition. And we believe we have the, the perfect solution to make, to make that happen. In fact, I believe the last barrel of oil produced in the world should be from an enhanced oil recovery reservoir because it would be a carbon neutral barrel at that point. How do you think the world would be different? Can you give me kind of a, a describe to us the before and after, say, um, maybe in, in 20 years? What kind of change will we see? I think if we, if we can make it happen, if we can get everybody working uh, together on this, I think that in 20 years we could, we could see a dramatic change in how aviation is going, how maritime is going. Uh, like right now, United has partnered with us to build the first facility Airbus has uh, signed up a contract to offset theirs. Now, the reason United um, is partnering with us to build it is because they don't want to buy carbon offsets for their for their jet fuel. They want it, their jet fuel produced from carbon neutral or negative oil. Either way you want to do it, as long as you're doing something, Airbus wants to buy the CO2 offsets for, for their fuel. And so direct air capture and or other forms of carbon capture can provide that source of CO2 credits to make it happen. I believe what we're seeing and in, in the, the companies we're talking to today gives me a lot of hope and a lot of encouragement that corporations are getting way ahead of regulation and policy, and they're making the, the decisions to to do this and to make their their and to put a plan 
uh, in place to get to carbon neutrality because they think it's the right thing to do. And I, th- I see it happening all, all across the U.S. It's uh, it already happened in a big way in, in Europe. So, so it's encouraging to see that companies are making that commitment. There's so many uh, different uh, climate targets that uh, have been set by so many different people, organizations, and companies. And uh, in the next year, what is maybe one thing that absolutely needs do we need to make progress on this year in order to uh, you know, make, make sure that we can make some of these marks? In your, your opinion, what would that be? I'm going to dive into something that's more tactical, but I think 45Q in the United States needs to be enhanced. And while that might seem like a small thing, the reason it's important is because if we could get that enhanced, we could accelerate the development of these. And the more we can accelerate in the U.S., the more we can expand it worldwide. There's 50% more CO2 in the atmosphere than in pre-industrial times. And even if we stopped all the emissions today, we would still need to remove it from the air. So I think the technology that's got to happen is direct air capture. We have in plans to build 70, but the world needs a lot more than that. So if we can get that technology cost down, others will come along with us and build these all around the world. And for those not familiar, 45Q is an expanded tax credit for carbon sequestration, commonly known by its section number in the tax code. Uh, To shift topics a bit, you are the first woman to run a major American oil and gas company. Did you ever imagine that for yourself? Absolutely not, ever. <laughs> I, I was happy being an engineer, and I had the, you know, the good fortune to be able to work not only in the United States, but in Russia, uh, Venezuela, Ecuador. I got to see other cultures, and I love our industry. I'm very passionate about it. I think I'm always proud of the fact that we have fueled the world, and we still continue to do it. We just need to do it differently now, yeah. and we need to make that change faster. But, but I'm excited about what our industry is, has done and achieved and want to continue to be a part of that. When I was told that I was a candidate to be CEO, I was shocked. In fact, I thought our former CEO was joking with me. And then as I was leaving the building, I started realizing he wouldn't joke about that. So it took me a while to, to let that sink in. What capabilities do you think they, they felt like, you know what, we need her in this role because she's going to bring X and Y? What, what capabilities do you think that they really felt they wanted at that moment? I, I think the, what, I, what I feel that I've been able to do that's been helpful to me my whole career, and that is bring people with me. And I've always felt like if you can make the people around you better, if you can facilitate their development and their growth, then you're going to have a better team. So I focus on people. And um, I'm very passionate, and I'm I'm definitely, uh, I persevere. I think perseverance is is one of the P's, so, so it's passion, people, perseverance. And if you got all three of those, I think you got a chance to be really s- successful. There's not a lot of women in the energy industry, period. And there's great efforts being done to, to bridge that gap all over the place. Uh, and I'll ask you the same question that I asked Anna Borg a few months ago. What, what can be done? What can, uh, uh, what can companies do? What can universities do? What can women do you know, as they're sort of exploring you know, opportunities? What, what can be done to sort of bridge this gap? I'm a part of a group, a women's group in Houston that was formed by McKenzie, and I'm on the advisory board. We have now grown our uh, network of cohorts and started expanding throughout, out of Houston into other areas. And I think part of it is women helping women and, and trying to ensure that we 
we provide for women today what we didn't have before because we we others blazed the trail for us you know i wasn't the first to ever ceo there were ceos in other industry who spent some time to talk to me and they were helpful to me so i want to be helpful to others and so this group is is trying to make that happen and to to give encouragement and and give some tools and to mentor people and women i mean in our industry but i think it it doesn't happen without two things happening in a big way. One is that we have to get people who are really good people to understand they do have some unconscious bias. So I think every CEO of every company in the world should take unconscious bias tests. Even women, every CEO, you need to take it. You should make the C-suite take that training. Beyond that, you need to have advocates for your, um, your diverse employees, not just women, but all your diverse employees, you need to put advocacy programs in place. Because I think just about every CEO that you would talk to probably says at some point they had someone advocating for them. I certainly did for me in my role. And so that needs to happen. I think all of those things have to happen in a big way. I can think of people today who were with some of my peer companies and, and they ended up retiring, never getting to that role, and and I think they would have been amazing had they had that opportunity. You mentioned that one thing that you prioritize is bringing people with you. What's a block and tackle way that people can can make sure that they're doing that? I think a lot of people, if you ask them, you know, do you create opportunity for others? You know, everybody would say yes. But again, unconscious bias. People have blind spots. They may not realize things that they aren't doing. Right? Uh, what's so? Just to give an example, maybe it could inspire someone else. What's a way that you have sort of helped you know bring people along and sort of help make opportunity? I think you have to make sure that you're creating the discussion about it. For example, in, in our company, we every year go through succession planning. One time we did it, and as we were talking about candidates, a couple of us in the room thought about a person and thought, well, why is she not on this list? HR went to uh, her manager and had a chat with him, not about that, because she didn't want to have the discussion go right away to that person, but she sort of talked about some other things, got up to leave, and she said, Oh, what about uh, Rachel, how she's doing, just using a name? And he responded to say, oh, she's great. She's just doing amazing things and just started rattling off all the things that she was doing well. And so the HR person says, wow, do you think she should be on the succession planning list? He said, oh, my God, yes, you should be. He hadn't thought about it. And I know him and he's a good guy. It wasn't intentional at all. It was just he didn't think about it. And so, so we have to make those discussions happen. Yeah. Yeah. Is there a piece of advice that you've always valued that you thought, gosh, you know, I'm so glad I heard that. I, that's been great for me. It would take me a long list. I, I have a long list of advice. <laughs> I have, I've had some people who have really helped me along the way and given me advice. And, and I think that the one that kind of stuck with me for a while was I was at this women's conference giving a presentation. And, and when I came off the stage, there was a lady standing there. She came over to me and she said, Vicki, that was great. I enjoyed it. But please, don't ever become a man. And it wasn't to be offensive to the men, but it was to say that in the way I interpreted it was what got you here. Don't lose those skill sets. Don't think you have to adapt. Don't think you have to do things the way men do it just because it's been mostly men that have been CEOs. You don't have to do it their way. You have to do it your way. You have to do it the way that 
makes sense for you and the way you've been able to to get to where you are. Now, some things you have to leave behind, but um, but always be who you are, no matter what the situation. What's something that you know is kind of a, a, a trademark Vicky <laughs> trait? <laughs> what, what would that be? Trademark Vicky, I would say that uh, the way I feel and think about day to day is was formed by my mother who passed away tragically during a heart surgery. And what I discovered about her as I was talking with her friends is she had this ability to brighten people's day. She had this ability when she was around people to, to just make them happier and to feel better. And so I feel like my, my trademark within Oxy would be that I try to connect and I try to every day make somebody's day better. And sometimes it's just a smile. Sometimes it's talking with them. Sometimes spending a little time with them. But now I've found that some of our employees do the same with me, especially during some of the challenging times. I have one employee who every day, every morning, sends me an inspirational uh, message. And it's, it's a person that's a couple of levels or a few levels down in the organization, but she and I had worked together at one point. And so when she saw how difficult things were, she started sending me these texts and she's kept it going now for about four years. That's amazing. And so uh, if we would think that way and, and try to do that, I, I think you get more connected to people. Then you, you also get to a point where you know when something's not right with them and you know when there's something that needs to be done. You mentioned a trait that you think you, you lean into because it's natural for you. Is there a trait that you needed to sort of lead behind that you're like, you know what, this wasn't as useful, I don't need this anymore, it helped me get up to here, but I don't need it anymore? For, for a long time, I felt like I needed to be involved in the whole organization. Even though I trusted those who reported to me, I felt like there were times that I could help. And, and I'm now, I, I do a lot more delegation and do a lot more letting people just try their own thing and, and see how it works. And I can tell you, during the pandemic, we just made a major acquisition six months before the pandemic. And when we realized what was happening, you know, the price war started before the pandemic. So we had a double whammy there. And so we needed to very quickly, dramatically change our spend profile and try to survive, try to preserve cash. So that's what we told our employees. We said, we don't know where this is going. We don't know how low it's going to go or how long it's going to last. What we need to do is preserve cash. We didn't tell them what they needed to do. We just said that. Next thing I knew, all kind of great decisions were being made. The organization was moving forward, no bureaucracy. People were just making uh, decisions and doing the things they do best. And, and it worked out beautifully. And that's a model now we're, we're trying to replicate. But now now that uh, we're, we're way past survival and into thriving again, Sometimes you, you see those bureaucracies almost trying to creep back in and you go, oh, no, no, <laughs> we can do it better. They'll do it better. Just leave them alone. A little bit of simplicity and straight yeah. talk. <laughs> exactly. That was Vicki Hollop. This episode of Meet the Leader was produced and presented by me with Juan Turan as studio engineer and Gareth Nolan driving studio production. That's it for now. I'm Linda Lucina from the World Economic Forum. Have a great day. <laughs>